You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. I know you think you're just somewhere right now, and I don't know that you're listening, but I do know you're listening. I'm listening to you listen. It's new technology, and I want to thank you for being alive and spending any of your life listening to this podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. This is Ned Buskirk. I just want to cut to the chase here and introduce introduce this guest. (laughs) Okay, do you guys know that I had a lisp when I was a little boy? And I'm going to leave that in. I had a lisp and I had to do speech therapy. And so every now and Every now and then it sneaks out and I'm just, I'm going to out. I'm coming out right now. I'm letting y'all know I did have a lisp. Okay. And, uh, and it's still in there somewhere every now and then it comes out and it's weird to have had a lisp and also suddenly lisp because maybe it's not because I used to have a lisp. Maybe the speech therapy got rid of it, but it triggers that old little boy. That old little boy who used to lisp. Anyway, I digress. Welcome to the episode. I want to cut to the chase here and get right to introducing our sweet guest. This is the kind of guest that lands perfectly in the context of You're Going to Die's Creatively Conscious Mortality conversation because of all their work with death and dying and end of life. And they're a musician. In fact, at the end of this episode, stay tuned for a track from Aditi and the Appalutions titled Seva. It is so beautiful, and I love landing this conversation in Aditi's music. It's perfect. Dr. Aditi Sethi is a hospice and palliative care physician, end-of-life doula, and musician. Featured in the forthcoming film, The Last Ecstatic Days, Aditi is an emerging and important voice for shifting our culture's understanding and approach to dying, death, and bereavement care. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Dr. Aditi Sethi. So I think, you know, when I stepped into this work with the Center for Conscious Living and Dying, I knew we were sort of entering an experiment. You know, what does community-supported end-of-life care really mean? And what does it really take to show up at the bedside of someone? And you spoke to some of that. Like it's really getting out of our own way and um, looking at our own conditioned responses and ways of being and our own shadows. Um, So that's what's alive for me right now is what does it really mean to be in community doing this work and showing parts of ourselves and revealing parts of ourselves and having parts of ourselves activated um, while we're preparing to take care of people in these vulnerable times. Mm I, my fir- the first thing that comes up, you know, it's like how I feel about what I do as a contrast to where I was, I lived through something that wasn't that thing. And my, my version of that, one of them is my mom's death. You know, I wouldn't be here with you if not for her death and how she died. But also there's so much about what I'm committed to that that's in contrast to how that all went. I think really even the years it took for her to try to survive cancer and, and ultimately die from it. And I'm wondering, thinking about what you, you, you do, um, was there versions of, of dying that you saw where you just thought this doesn't have to be this way or why is it so lonely or this is harder than it should be? Um, do you have versions of that? Yeah. Well, starting when I was 17 as a hospice volunteer, 
it's almost 25 years ago, I was struck by how alone people were in this process. And, you know, working for hospice is such a wonderful thing. And with volunteer support, there's a lot that hospice offers, but it doesn't offer that 24-7 care that is required when you're in this final season of life. And I found myself curious as to why certain people were dying alone in facilities or alone in an apartment and why others were surrounded by love and support. And um, so those had a real big, those experiences had a big impact on my curiosity around how we choose to live our lives and how that ultimately impacts our dying experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I've gone through my medical training and personal experiences of death with loved ones, I've seen how removed we are from death and how that impacts our experience when we're confronted with death of a loved one or ourselves and Mm -hmm. how little preparation people have and how little contemplation we actually have as a culture, as a, as a society around this topic. So Mm -hmm. all of that has influenced my experience and impacted the work I'm doing now, which is part-time physician work and part-time executive director and founder work. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, definitely my hospice volunteering, especially after my mother-in-law died and I saw the, the contrast between my mom and her death with hospice support in it, feeling the volunteer need was to match that, what you just described, like having people there in those stretches where no one what could be. And here in the city, at least in San Francisco, with the organization I worked with, there were so many people that didn't have family and friends even that uh, for whatever reason couldn't come or had to work or lived somewhere else. Um, so definitely feeling that like very obvious, like what's, why is the holding not going all the way through this entire experience? Um, and really, to- so then totally getting and feeling uh, how that would have been maybe even a beginning of seeing like, oh, well, the- here's the places where it is that. How do we keep make that like more for more people, you know? And I guess the next question would be then maybe to get a chance to hear you describe. Um, I mean, there's a couple ways we can go here because I feel like Ethan's death death is a part of the story that needs to be shared to talk about what, why the center is, is in existence. Does that feel like maybe the next place to go? And I, I just want to say, that, yeah, I've already spent time with you and when we talked, but also looking at the videos and, watching the trailer for the movie, um, last ecstatic days. And I'm just wanting to say that I'm very much already with even some of the complications that I feel like there's a video clip of you describing, which is like, I've been able to keep boundary mostly because it's necessary in the work we do. And that was not the case here. Um, and I don't mean in a bad way, like the bound it was unboundaried, but, um, mm-hmm. but I'm just wanting to, make a moment to like meet you in the tears. I've already seen you cry about that loss and also don't want to risk um, talking about Ethan and this part of the story as like the anecdote or the, this is, you know, this is the important part of the interview where we, cause I just, I just really feel how the human part of you is so intertwined with him and that, that thing, that dying, that living and how all that went. Um, so just a quick, quick moment to just emphasize that. Thank you so much. Mm. Yeah. My, my journey with Ethan was very much a catalyst for, um, the center for really moving forward with the center for conscious living and dying. And I only knew Ethan and the physical for two weeks, wow. which is really incredible. So, so when I think of even his death, it doesn't feel like a loss because so much, I gained so much from that journey mm-hmm. and his legacy is clearly living on. And when this film is launched, I think he's going to continue to touch lives, which is the power of media and power of storytelling and power of 
what we're doing now, just sharing. Mm -hmm. And it amplifies the goodness and the intention of um, healing and love and honesty with the reality of being human, you know, which is what he, he was all about. And, you know, we speak about vulnerability. Um, part of why we have such an individualistic society and why people, you know, are living in these kind of quiet spaces and homes is because we are so private and so um, not conditioned and not comfortable with being vulnerable around each other. And so what Ethan showed in his dying experience, and actually he started uh, using social media, TikTok, YouTube, while he was dealing with his cancer journey. So it wasn't necessarily just that he was sharing about his dying days. It was really about his life living with cancer and confronting his mortality from the beginning. But what he showed was what the power of being vulnerable and open and loving and comfortable with what is and how that can actually impact all of those that care for you as you're dying and serve the world, really serve humanity. So he taught me so much about vulnerability, um, even in his physical appearance, appearance because of his cancer treatments and his t tumor burden. He had a pretty extensive surgery where half of his skull was removed and they took a skin flap from his abdomen, and put it on his mm. head. So, and he wasn't shy about it. He wasn't covering it up. He wasn't hiding, you know, he was just, here I am. This is what's it, what is now what? Can I just stop real quick and, and acknowledge uh -huh. something that feels really powerful, which is, I mean, based on, the, based on, and this is really important based on the, the videos and his story and the trailer, it seems like y'all have been friends for 20 years. And so, but what I'm wanting to highlight is like, what's possible with that kind of vulnerability, that kind of like openness, that kind of like connectedness, love, community. Um, it could be that deep and that quick, you know, it wouldn't take time with someone who's that open and how much he leaned into like receiving and the generosity of that dying um, to like make a, make a lifetime of a relationship in the little time you actually knew, like you said, his, him alive. Um, I mean, that alone feels like a testament to the power of that story, you know? Wow. Thank you for that. Mm. Yeah. I had the privilege of working in a, in an inpatient hospice facility, which was 26 beds and had 26 beds. And that's a lot of souls, you know, to tend to and support in their dying yeah. days. And it was an inpatient facility. So people in hospice who basically needed a more aggressive symptom management could come there. And so I often only had short windows of time to connect with people. But in the, that's partly why I really love working with those in this time, because, you know, you shed all of the isms, you know, the, all the judgments, all the accomplishments, everything. You just get to be with a person and their essence of who they are, as all of those things are kind of becoming a memory. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Ethan was a very, my time with Ethan was a very, um, a very stark example of that because it was two weeks and we did, we accomplished so much, you know, we mm -hmm. went through, moved through so much and we gathered so much, so much love and support around him. Um, and all of that is captured in the film, which I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. um, so that actually, that journey with him and seeing how much community benefited and were, how jazz people were at showing up to care for this person and bring all their gifts, their music, their art, their um, rituals, their smells, their incense, you know, frankincense, their food. I mean, it was just so beautiful. And people were so enlivened by the experience with Ethan. And that made me realize, okay, you know, there's so much room for creativity here and caring mm -hmm. for one another. And mm -hmm. it is not, death is not a medical event. And it is time to remember that and see what we can do on a community level to support one another as our population ages and as more and more people look at death head on, you know? Yeah. So. Uh, I, I've been feeling that a lot lately and, and even in some other podcast conversations, it feels like a theme that, that is important to highlight, which is, um, 
this like whole human experience and that that's a creative endeavor and, and that part of what can happen with dying is not like, let's focus on hospice and palliative care. It's like, no, like what are all the ways we can like actually, um, make room for many ways of being alive as we are dying. Um, and, and just to kind of make it clear why I'm present to this now, one of the conversations I had was with BJ Miller and, and Lady Bird Morgan. They're having a conference here in, in, in Nevada city, um, this month. And part of their commitment is like bringing in lots of different perspectives. That's definitely like in a container focused on end of life and palliative care and, and grief. Um, but also a lot of stuff around sexuality and architecture and art and creativity and psychedelics and all that. And I feel what you're talking about is a version of that. You know, my, my coming out of that conversation, there was clarity for me that, that no judgment to any end of life conference or hospice conference. But sometimes when we focus so specifically on like, this is the work to get done and here's how we can be successful at this thing, this specific thing, we almost get away. Like I think you're saying from the humanness of it or the maybe deepening of aliveness possible by going just um, so focused in on, again, not that that stuff isn't needed, but I think you're speaking to a version of that. And so I'd like to hear a little more about that. I think even especially probably in a way that, you know, BJ Miller was talking about doctors who play the piano and somehow that has nothing to do with what their, what their work is with the dying. And, you know, it wasn't judging people like that, but he's saying like, what's possible in making room like I know you are as a musician to like include these other ways we're human and how we care for people at the end of life. Um, this is by the way, my signature question that's about five minutes long. <laughs> You're like, well, what's the question? I think I you get what it. I'm after. I, okay, love, right. I mean, I can feel into what you're asking. Oh, and all I can say is that there is, there are endless possibilities when we, bring our whole self forth to an experience. And that's been my experience. So if I am, as I was told that you are a physician, your job is to admit the patient, get their meds situated and control their physical pain. The social worker can do the rest. The chaplain can do their part. So this is when we were cutting costs and staff was limited. And, you know, so if I was told when I was told that I knew that that wasn't going to be sustainable. I can't just bring one part of myself to this mist, great mystical experience, essentially. Um, so to me, the possibilities are endless for self healing, for uh, personal growth and transformation as a provider of the loving care and of uh, the person who is receiving that care, feeling the depths of love and the expansiveness of that time together mm. with the music, with the smells, with the food, mm -hmm. with the celebration mm -hmm. and with the yeah. grief and the sorrow and sure. the, the sadness and the weight. Yeah. But, but to only focus on that and not acknowledge the life that this person has led doesn't really serve the whole, the whole family, the whole person, mm. the whole community which is what we did for Ethan. We really gave him a, or offered him a, an experience of dying that reflected how he had lived his life. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't being able, he wasn't able to have that the two weeks before, before I met him mm -hmm. two weeks leading up to that. So I don't know if that answers your question, but absolutely. I mean, yeah. well, I guess the first thing that comes up for me though, too, is in the clip I saw you, you say what I referenced earlier. It's a moment when you talk about needing to be boundaried and the, 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 the need for that and like doing the work. And I, I mean, I, I don't want to fill in more than that. That's what you said in it. And then you said it wasn't, this was different with Ethan. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that. I mean, what did it teach you? What did it, re what did it reinforce around your belief with the boundaries for your work? Like I, I can imagine, I mean, really, truly for, for the work I do, I wonder if you can relate. It's like, what if everyone was an Ethan? I mean, I just feel like you'd go into work and you got 26 people who are having that kind of dying experience. You would just be like, your heart would explode. Your head would explode. You couldn't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. What can, what, what can you say about that? You know, cause I really relate and need to 
keep working always on, I'm going to hold grief space this week, let's say, at a workshop. What does it mean to be, like you said, wholly human there and open and vulnerable and like sort of create that kind of space for people and be careful too, you know, like to, to take care of myself. And anyway, I think you, I think you get what I'm curious about. I mean, mm-hmm. most of these might just be more questions, but. Yeah. I don't know if I have, I clearly don't have all the answers. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still learning. I think Great. with Ethan in particular, I was his physician initially. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that what I could offer him as a physician wouldn't have met his deepest desires and wishes and soul's yearning, which was to film his dying process and to be in community. I had a choice. I could have kept him in this inpatient hospice or I could have gotten creative, which I did and discharged him and became his doula. So I could show up in a way that he really wanted or needed. Uh, so, so it's like, I don't think you can generalize. Not everybody wants the journey that Ethan had or the experience he had, but to not have that be part of the offering or part of the toolbox, if you will, or possibility, possibilities, right. Mm -hmm. That to me is a disservice. It's not. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's more how I saw that journey with Ethan and boundaries. I think when I have 26 people and and more, um, it's, it's just a different experience. I didn't go as deep with all the 26 people in that building at any given time, Mm -hmm. but the, the connections were deep and profound. I just didn't get as involved in the whole total care of that person. That makes total sense. I appreciate that because I think in one of your bios, it talks about you being a physician and, you know, that particular role and you're, you, you're skilled in being a death doula or have done training as a death mm-hmm. doula. And so I, I really see then and get now what that afforded you with, uh, with Ethan, you know, what it opened up in terms of how you could be with him in, in those last days. Yeah. I and it was so that. wonderful to bring all parts of myself to that experience, the music and the presence and the touch and the, mm-hmm. you know, presence, like you said. So, well, then I guess the question for me then it, it you know, next, it seems obvious that well, with the 25 other patients in Sarwa, just fixated on this 26 number, <laughs> but, but I'm thinking about with the, the center, you likely wouldn't be that for everybody there either. And so I guess part of your job maybe, or, or someone at the center would be, how do we fill those roles? You know, how do we make sure there's someone that is the like death doula that you were for Ethan to like be, is that part of sort of the organization of, and that's, I know it sounds like such a like sort of cold word to use, but you know, for, for supporting people in, in their dying days, is that a commitment you have? It's like, well, we want to make sure there's someone like you were for Ethan. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yes. Thank you for that question. So in my experience with healthcare, there's so little, almost not, no attention given to being present with someone, genuinely present and slowing down enough just to pause. And, you know, we know it doesn't take long to really connect. It can happen in an instant where you just fully show up for a person. So almost no training is given in that. No time and attention is given to that. And that used to be very frustrating to me in in healthcare. So when I think about what we're doing and the work that is being called forth, which is really um, remembering that each one of us has the capacity to show up for people who are dying. You don't need to have a degree. You don't have to have special training even. You just have to have basic Um, the basic ability to be present and loving and kind. Sure, skills are important and you'll get that. But the, but, but, and what it takes to even do that is really just to, to clear the way, to, to let go of, again, we talked about this, the conditioned responses and acknowledge the trauma and work with your trauma and fears and doubts and insecurities and all that. And so Part of the intention of the Center for Conscious Living and Dying is really to cultivate presence with ourselves and others so that I could entrust anyone in this community to be that person. I don't, and this is where this idea of one person being the teacher and leader, that doesn't resonate with me so much. I think, you know, decentralizing and, and expanding our um, the support that we can offer people because everyone can do this and everyone can cultivate this. So that's really what we're trying to teach and impart. And so, yes, the answer is we would like a point person who has the skills and the the ability to be present with someone to help that person. And it's not always going to be me. And that's not the idea. 
Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, something that's been coming up lately for me or ongoing and, and it feels important to take a minute to, to speak to this and, and just to always, you know, remind ourselves of the option that I, that I love, which is like you said, part of why I love this work is that I can't imagine ever reaching a point where I'm not learning. Um, and this feels like one of those topics and it's, it's simply like what, you know, I'm thinking people who watch the, the movie about Ethan or listening to this episode and, and knowing that there's some kind of privilege often built in to, to dying, especially in our country. It's like, how do we have like a dying that really honors our humanness? And so much of the healthcare system has limits to it. Um, I, I think culturally, we're, we're talking around the fact that we're just not, you know, communally trained. We're not communally ongoing in the conversation of what it means to do this together for everybody. That it's that it's maybe our responsibility, or could be our responsibility more and more. Like I think you're speaking to supporting happening at the center and in general, and 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 it's certainly what I hope. Right, is that what we what we're committed to with our work as an organization is what does it mean to take responsibility like whoever we are for each other's grief and for heart each other's heartbreak and maybe each other's healing but also like the dying of our community members and so i guess i'm wondering if you can speak to you know there's people out there be like well it's just it you know i mean thinking specifically like did ethan was he suffering a great deal? Cause sometimes I feel like people say, well, sure you can have a good death, but like, it seems like Ethan wasn't really in pain and I can't imagine that's, that's true. But I, again, this whole topic of like, well, things have to be just a certain way. And anybody that has a good death is, has the privilege of having that death. Um, I know that's a vast topic, but it feels really important in a way that connects to what I think also we're talking about, which is, well, how do we make it? like less and less of a privilege and more and more of a standard, I guess. Yes. What a great question. So Ethan was 36. He didn't have a home. His parents were separated. So he was unhoused. You can say, um, he was suffering in a great deal of pain in a, an inpatient hospice in Charlotte and not pretty much alone, <clears throat> alone. And so he could have died peacefully that way on medications and just gone out quietly, which is not the way it ended up happening and unfolding. Um, but the model that we're looking at is based on, for the direct care piece of center, the Center for Conscious Living and Dying, there's a direct care offering, kind of supporting people like Ethan to have an experience um, that they want. Um, it's based on a model called the Omega Home model, which basically in the 80s, these homes popped up around during the AIDS crisis, where people, all they had to do was open up a home and have volunteers come and care for people who were dying. Not a medical facility, nothing fancy, um, but hospice would come into the home and offer the medical care. And then we would provide, they would provide the one-on-one -on -one care and the home. And so that is the model that we're using. We're part of the Omega Home Network. We're the only one in North Carolina. And we are offering care free of charge to those who are dying. So anybody is welcome to be a part of this community. And um, we will reach out to our partners, local hospice partners, the hospital and the, the churches that are serving that population. And so that is absolutely a part of the mission and vision to, to make this care accessible, to be sensitive to the belonging, equity, justice, diversity, inclusion work, to to kind of restore that like ah, the the love and humanity to this process
This is podcast producer Nick Jaina here, reminding you that You're Going to Die is not just a podcast, but it is also a 501c3 corporation. Did you think that we didn't file the paperwork to be a nonprofit? Well, we did. We signed all the places and we initialed them where the uh, legal person told us to, and we sent in the paperwork and the fee. I didn't do this myself. Ned did it years ago, I imagine. Uh, or maybe my wife Chelsea did it. I'm not sure. But uh, we're certified, we're nonprofit, and that means that you can support us and feel good about it and also reap the tax benefits. Um, there's going to be a, a, a healthy tax break windfall for you. Um, if you give to us, that money won't be taken to improve the schools and the roads. It'll be, <laughs> um, it'll go right back to you. Or I, I forget how taxes work. No, you keep more of it. I don't know how it works. Anyway, we're nonprofit and we do great things. We do this podcast. We do this weekly grief release every Wednesday. There's just a, an open Zoom hour where Ned and some other people, sometimes me, are there just to listen to you um, talk about your grief and to receive you and to um, just make you feel witnessed. Um, we do a lot of wonderful things. Check us out, yg2d.com. It's a wonderful organization. I'm proud to be a part of it. Thank you for listening. Share this podcast with friends if you know of somebody that would be moved by this too. Why is it not a standard is because that's, that's a loaded question. I think we'd have to get anthropologists, uh, oh, my one, sociologists, my one succinct question. <laughs> my one succinct question is loaded. Sorry, can't answer it. Right, I'm going to go mean, back to my old no. five-minute <laughs> meandering. I think historians, um, economists, I think that is a question that, mm -hmm. I mean, our whole modern world is based uh, on profit and, mm -hmm. you know, systems and. Yeah. There's no money in dying. I've just been thinking no, about that lately. It's <laughs> so know? true. And yet mm -hmm. we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, uh, until we realize that death has value and that this approach has value, the financial resources won't be allocated to such endeavors. That said, the amount of local support that we have for what we're doing has been so beautiful. Mm. Elders who see what we're a value of what we're doing and offering their gifts and whether it's monetary or not. We had a beautiful one of our first volunteers um, is eight, in her 80s and she was a sign maker. So she made these beautiful, she had all the equipment, has all the equipment. She made these beautiful signs that we would have spent thousands to make for the center. You know, so it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's remembering that elders have gifts that they can still offer. It's rem remembering that people, so it, it's, it's a different kind of economy. It's based on a different economy, mm -hmm. almost a gift economy, but yet we need the money as well, the financial sure. contribution. Yeah. So we're a traditional nonprofit. We will get creative um, with programming and trainings to help support like to bring in revenue, but we're also going to rely on grants, but nothing, no government funding. Yeah. So, well, you that's know, I not think, a limitation, but just a reality. Yeah, sure. Thank yeah. You. Thank you. Um, love the high, love the acknowledging again, you keep bringing it back to like, well, it takes the community, you know, it, of course we need funding, but here's the ways community can meet needs. Um, like you said, the gifts, um, and especially loving the elders and, and in a culture that that's so dismissive of our aging population, um, for reasons that connect to what we're talking about. Right. You know, um, what a, what a sweet, uh, element to, to really highlight right now. Um, thank you for that. And I'm wondering a couple things, you know, I think about the Zen hospice project here in, in the city, which, who, which I'm sure you're familiar with and, and 
the Zen Hasis project closed in 2018, the house did. And, you know, I'm thinking about where you've seen other attempts at this. And if you've done much research in that regard, um, or are very present to those contexts and how, how does that influence what you're committed to with your center? And also maybe even internationally, like where, where, where other cultures or communities, countries, cities around the world doing something like this with much more ease or a longer history of a commitment to that. Um, again, I know a big question, but a little bit of like, where, where have you seen this not work and how does that impact what you're up to and where do you see it working, you know, beyond the Omega home network? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I want to, what's coming to me is to share the, uh, the Lancet is one of the oldest medical journals in the world, um, based in, I want to say, England. And in 2022, they came out with a commission paper, a 40-page commission paper called um, The Value of Death, Bringing Death Back to Life, Into Life. And it is a picture, a paper that, 40 pages, that talks about death, um, how we're supporting those who are dying globally. And um, acknowledges that in some countries, people have, they don't even have basic access to pain management. So there's a lot of suffering all the way to developed countries where there's such futile care given in the final stages of life. Um, but it also talks about this realistic utopia where the vision would be that death is no longer seen as a medical event, which is what we're, we've spoken to. That conversations about death, grief, um, death, dying, and grief become commonplace and that they start happening again around the dinner table. Uh, that communities come together to serve those that are dying. So everything that we're talking about. So they looked at um, and they highlighted a community in South India, Kerala, where they have successfully incorporated volunteers into their offering of hospice care and the impact that that's had on pain and emotional well-being and spiritual and feelings of connectedness and um, in the dying process. So that is a success story. Um, there's a community in New Zealand, uh, Farewell New Zealand, that has been utilizing a similar model of community I'm sorry. supported I'm care. sorry, hold on, hold on. Is the, yeah. is the town or the city called Farewell? Is that just incidental? <laughs> I think or that's is just that... the, I think it's the organization. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Farewell, that's sweet. Okay, great um, name. Yes. And then I think the models that have been challenged are the ones that are still using a hybrid model where they're getting some Medicare, Medicaid funding, which comes with a whole lot of regulatory requirements. There are some models that have still incorporated RN, registered nurse and CNA support, certified nursing assistant support, which can be costly once you get that level of care. And I think that's what happened. My understanding of the Zen Hospice Project is that there were some financial challenges around because they were still using that hybrid model. So what we're attempting is a fully, minus the admin operational staff required to just keep something like this going and is, is really a volunteer-led and run community. That's the big difference. Mm -hmm. And every state, so the Omega Home, you can go go to the Omega Home Network and see a map of our country and see where the homes are. Still. And something to keep, yeah. Active our country, network, yeah. yeah. Active network. And what's important to know is that each state has their own regulatory requirements around how you will be licensed or regulated. Mm. So it's just something to consider. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for all that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just feeling like acknowledging you said earlier, you know, maybe if I'd asked you to do this a few years ago, you, you would have not really wanted to or whatever. And I'm just how well spoken you are and knowledgeable and, and fluid, uh, with how you speak to these topics. Um, I'm wanting just to acknowledge you for that, uh, now, but I guess it is a little question in there too, is what has it felt like over the last few years to sounds like maybe even not have a choice, but to be a little more visible. Um, I just think with this work and maybe you can relate the doorways start to just be there and, and your work leads to the next one. And then you have to go through. And sometimes that doorway is, Oh, you're in a movie with someone who you care about deeply. Uh, and we're a part of a hugely significant 
moment in their life that's an incredible story that needs sharing. And so then you're now visibly involved and don't have a choice. Maybe, of course, you always have a choice, but to start saying, I have something to say and I need to. Do you relate to any of that? And what has that been like for you over the last few years? Was that a loaded question or so confusing that you're it's like? Such a, it's, such a, it's such a gift to be mm. asked about um, my personal journey in this work. And I'm interestingly, I'm still finding language for it. So this is such a gift to be mm. offered an opportunity to share. Um, and it goes back to when I, you know, I mean, you can look at life. I think everyone can relate to things that we came into the world with and that we remember having as children. And then what happens as we move through the world and are told certain things about ourselves or um, influenced by certain experiences that keep us kind of more fearful about being I'm our full I'm just starting selves. to cry, but both because I think you're speaking to some part of me, but also I'm feeling the grief of that truth. And as parents, I know you can relate. Yeah. These children come in with so much and I can mm. see how the world will tell them that that's not enough or that's not right or that's not a way a child should behave. And, and what that does for our, our souls, our spirits. <clears throat> so I felt very disconnected in my teenage years and up into early college days and <clears throat> very um, shy and self-conscious. So I would never get in front of a camera. You, you rarely see me in a video at all. Even to this day, I don't, FaceTime was really awkward and I just tend to be behind the camera. And mm. so when the opportunity, so, 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 and my dying, my work with hospice care was such a private journey. I was only hospice, the only kid in my college class volunteering for hospice at the time. Oh, wow. I was the weird one. You know, why would you do that? And, and so that's it was just an been a very private in early school, interest. You were wanting to, you were leaning into end of life palliative care. That's was, that yes. was an interest of yours. Yeah. It just found me and it resonated so deeply because it felt like it, it was something that nobody talked about. And I thought, if I had this, this awareness that I'm going to die, maybe I wouldn't take all this shit so seriously. Oh, yeah. And like, we would put it in perspective, which it did. And it has been such a gift, mm -hmm. but it was still a very private, quiet journey. And so to have an opportunity to be filmed doing the work that I love was very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And yet this is what, what I, when I got out of my own way and knew that this was being asked of me, I totally surrendered mm -hmm. and all of the self-consciousness, all the fear dissipated. Mm -hmm. And that, that energy has stuck with me. I mean, as soon as Ethan died, I put my notice in at work without a plan. I just knew I had to leave and step into what was being asked of me, which is, has led me to this conversation and the center. And, you know, uh -huh. so it's just been quite a transformational journey mm. oh that I gosh. think we all have access to if mm. we just listen and acknowledge the fear that arises and move, let it move through us and, you know, move past it. So, mm. yeah, quite That's a journey. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks for asking. Oh my goodness. So glad I did. Um, I guess I just acknowledged myself for asking her. <laughs> Great <laughs> job, man. Good job. Good job. Um, so it's fun to go to your website <clears throat> and I can imagine the listeners thinking it's going to be a website with palliative care and hospice in the center and all that, you know, as, as a, as a focus, which it has plenty of. But I love that you could go to the website without having heard you on a podcast or anything and and go there and think, wait, is this a musician? Wait, is this a musician's website? Or is this? And so I kind of want to go back to that, uh, that topic a little bit. Because um, I love that. And and I think it it's a sort of a strange internet uh, manifestation of what you were describing earlier, right? Which is like these whole parts of who we are. And that there's there's maybe a version of you that's like, it, your doc, your palliative care, your hospice, your doula training is like woven with also your creativity. And, and I, and I think, thank God, you know, I would say that the center 
has someone in a leadership role, you know, who's being that way and has the kind of aesthetic commitment maybe then too, you know, creative commitment to what's needed and that they embody it, it, it their version of it. And so I, I'd love to, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the music and how that maybe even specifically with Ethan, were you playing music with Ethan, you know, has music more and more started to emerge? Was that something that you started to work more on in the last five years? Anyway, that's, that's the, the question though, is the focus on that particular part right. of you being in the world and where it Thank intersects you. with this, this, yes. you know, yeah. Wow. I love this conversation that I just have to say first. Wow. You're clearly, um, such a gift. To, and a voice in this, you, this whole arena. Yeah. So it's funny because that website is a musician's website. It's called, it was Banzoogle, which is designed for musicians. And <laughs> it's just so funny. <laughs> um, I'm, bringing, I'm, look, I'm sorry. When I look away, I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at all these things. <laughs> I have all the links up. And the truth is, I, I began playing music when I was four, um, piano, and my uh, mm. grandfather taught me harmonium, which is an Indian instrument. I was going to say, yeah, love listening to you play that. Mm. Oh, thank you. And mm. my grandmother on my mom's side taught me uh, devotional songs. So it's been such an instrumental part of my existence um, and a way that really taps me into and connects me to the non-physical world. And it transports me and just, I've been, I'm singing chants that have been sung for centuries, you know? And so music has been a, a language that has enabled me to connect um, to my Southern, I grew up in the South, which had its own set of challenges. Um, yes. And it was beautiful. Um, yes. So I would do, I would sing in the choir, you know, hymns, and I would go to the temple and sing devotional music. And mm. as confused as I was being a, an Indian in the South, music was the the unifying energy and principle. And just like death is, it's this unifying principle. So yeah, music, I'm always singing. I'm always humming. It's just such a part of me. Mm -hmm. And my husband's a musician um, and was a music therapist for hospice. And so the music is woven into our whole life, our children's lives, our work life, our career lives are aspect, all different aspects of our being and our lives. So, um, at the bedside, bringing music is really a grounding experience for me. And I think it really enhances the person's experience, um, depending on what they like to hear. Ethan loved Indian devotional chanting. So I offered that and it was really, really powerful. Um, and Jay, my husband does, uh, writes legacy songs for people, which is a really beautiful offering. And I've gotten to sing those songs as well at people's memorials or celebrations mm. of life and just a beautiful way of mem remembering and honoring people mm. when they're gone. I love that. Mm -hmm. Did he, is the legacy, this is, we have a program called Songs for Life and it's similar to, I think, to what maybe Jay, it's Jay. Jay. Mm -hmm. Is doing, which is uh, that we have musicians go and play music at the, the bed, bedside for the dying community member and their family and friends. But also part of that is like over time, as you know, on hospice, sometimes it can be, you know, many months. Sometimes I've met with patients on hospice for over a year. Sometimes they get better because they've never had as good a care as when they were on hospice in their whole life. And, and like you said, wildly with the regulations, with some of these federal funding options, they'll get removed from hospice because they got too good. They got better <laughs> a little bit. But anyway one of the offerings in that context is over time learning the stories of these people talking with them and writing songs for them. Is that kind of the legacy exactly. song? Is that, mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in addition to working with the person who's dying, um, Jay has met with people, the bereaved, you know, people whose loved ones have died and they just sit, we sat at a coffee shop with my friend Jane talking about her husband, John and, um, through that storytelling and sharing, yes. Jay puts a song to it. So there's a song on yes, my website right. called Seva, right. which is about him. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, good, so good, that's good. another that's beautiful. Great. And so every time she hears that song, it can kind of bring her back into mm. the, the vibration and energy of his being and their mm. love. So, Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I care so much about that project, that pro- program. Um, so I love hearing a version of that in the world. Um, mm-hmm. Feeling uh, like we've, I, what I'm getting, I feel like Nick's heard me say this to like a few guests, but I mean it. You know, I feel like I get lucky to talk to a human like you, the kind of human that has me feeling like I could talk for four hours while also like feeling like how quickly and efficiently we got to such like deepening and whole and full like togetherness and and how we're talking to each other. So I just want to say that that I'm feeling that right now, Likewise, which which gives a little room, I think, um, to kind of pause and say like, well, what, where, what's, what is something like I have the list you put in the Google form. Um, it's all stuff we've kind of talked about already. Um, and also what else is kind of hanging that you want to, a thread that you want to pull on or something that feels, uh, worth making some time for, um, just to remind you, cause I know it's been a minute since you I'm sure you don't need the reminder, but you'd mentioned community supported end of life care, which we've talked plenty about. Mm -hmm. Um, The death is a communal spiritual event. I I wonder about this word spiritual, maybe that might be Mm -hmm. a place to sit for a sec Mm -hmm. rather than a medical event. I'm not sure about the spiritual piece. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to go there. But what do you? Well, can we talk about where that? Where shall we go? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what, funny. It's like well, well it's <laughs> no. So let's, that's funny. Yeah, actually, what was, coming, <laughs> what was coming to me actually was fear. Like what we do with fear. Mm. So you kind of just answered the question. You move towards chills. that fear. Yeah, yeah. You move towards the fear. So one thing that I, <laughs> I think that's a big part of what we're doing with this CCLD, you know, the conscious living part as well as the conscious dying part is moving towards fear or, and, and bringing love to, to that fear. Mm -hmm. And what we've done with death is move away from the fear of death, right? We kind of ignore it and avoid it. So what happens when we move towards it? Same with being in community when all our stuff comes up, which is happening, um, within this community as we're grounding and emerging. There's a lot of people's desire to be seen, need for belonging, miscommunications that are happening, and that's just part of it. And so rather than run away from a community, which is what, what we see the results of that in our individualistic, individualistic society, mm-hmm. like what happens when we come towards that fear and we, we work towards repair and healing you know, it's just, that's, that's a question I'm holding very, um, it's very alive for me right now is what does it look like to really repair and heal? And what are the implications for that, for our, the generations to come? Because we really are spiritual beings in these human bodies. Companion 
Thank you so much to Aditi for making the time to talk about so many meaningful things. If you want to get connected to Aditi and their work in the world, definitely go to the Center for Conscious Living and Dying, their website. You should sign up for their updates and their news. I'm going to put all these links in the show notes, so I'm going to skip spelling out these web addresses. But definitely connect to the Center for Conscious Living and Dying and the movie The Last Ecstatic Days, which we talk about in this conversation. There's a website specific to that, thelastecstaticdaysmovie.com. There's a trailer you can watch, lots of videos promoting that movie. Definitely stay connected to all those things. And if you want to contribute to support the Center for Conscious Living and Dying, you can Venmo them at Conscious Living Dying. And just to get to Aditi's website, that's the best way to connect to them specifically, go to aditisethimd.com. That link, again, will be in the show notes. Nick Jana, how are you? Hi. It's complicated. Ooh, yeah. Life <laughs> is complicated. You want to talk about it? See if we can compartmentalize, parse out the bits? Well, I was just thinking how, I don't know if other people feel this, but I often have this sense at the end of my year, like my birthday is September 6th, and when it gets to the end of my, my own year, I get this feeling of like, let's just move on to the next year. <laughs> let's turn the page, you know? Hurry it not, up. Not for the birthday, not for presents and cake, but just for like, let's get to the new year and uh, see if we can uh, reset. You know, I think generally I bet people feel that way about New Year's, but I, yeah. I, I wonder how many people relate to the birthday, like a new year of life in that way. I don't. It's funny. It was in a um, writing workshop with with you a few months ago where there was something about uh, what is the value of my own death? Was that a prompt? Mm -hmm. um, or no, mm -hmm. was, it so, was it something like that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one you're talking about. Um Anyway, I wrote a I wrote a poem in in that workshop talking about being born in the fall and how fall feels like the beginning forever because that's where I began and just like in oh, all yeah. the cycles like summer which is normally presented as like the height of joy and excitement and fun and everything mm -hmm. to me feels like the end of everything mm. and the fall feels like the beginning and, oh yeah and I'm, I'm just so excited just when that change happens when you just hear the like cr the crunch of leaves and the little bit of cold in the air and everything, you know, the, yeah. I guess the pumpkin spice, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, your latte, latte, suddenly your latte has pumpkin spice in it. Say it. I just yeah. get this feeling of being home again. Like I've mm. rounded the the last turn and I'm like in the straight. I can you know? totally relate to that. I mean, you know, my birthday's in October and so it's my birthday starts all the like favorite holidays, you know, yeah. the yeah. November holiday going into the, you know, the winter holidays and the end of the year and Halloween and, um, 
but that feeling of fall, it is special for me too. Um, interesting to think of it as a beginning, you know, like it's a dying too, but, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I relate to it that way. It just, yeah. and then August always feels like the dog days, but I, I guess I've, I've never been a good swimmer. <laughs> I'm like really wilt in the heat. Um, <laughs> yeah. At the same time, I'm constantly just like, why doesn't somebody invite me to go swimming? <laughs> in the <laughs> sun. Know, like a bummer. Yeah. Who's we like, all know, Nick, we talk about it. and drowning. It's like, it's not a, no, he, he doesn't like swimming or being in the sun. Or, do, well, or day drinking, uh, you know, those three things. Let's not yeah. invite that guy. But uh, yeah, I just associate it with like being kind of uh, missing out on things. Like mm, this. And then the fall mm -hmm. happens and I'm like, ah, it's me again. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of getting invited to things, uh, we both <laughs> got to experience, that's a good one, right? A good segue. Um, we both got to experience a special show this mm. weekend. Did you want to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we saw the Bengsons at yeah. uh, the Fugazi Theater in San Club Francisco. Fugazi, yeah. Club Fugazi in North Beach, San Francisco, which hosted the... I, I love the guy who gave the introduction. So the good. Like, it was such gosh, a great context. memorize this? Yeah, really good. <laughs> so it's been there for 100 years. It hosted mm -hmm. a beach blanket Babylon for 45 years. Something I remember... Like I don't know if you know, I lived in North Beach in like 1995, 96. I'm not sure I do remember that. Before I was even 21, and I remember seeing signs for that and just mm. having no concept for like what it is, but just imagining like, oh, it's an adult thing. It's, it's I, uh, you know, and I never saw it. I just never knew. And now it's over. Um, so it's funny that it had such a presence in that community mm -hmm. and in that theater. Um, but he also said that Robin Williams had his first uh, stand-up uh, stand show yeah uh-huh uh grateful dead played there it's crazy yeah. that like yeah i had no idea um, and the beats um yeah Allen ginsburg Jack Carroll, yeah said. totally um but yeah it was that that like old style like small but it has a balcony um that kind of feels like um i don't know i know some of those used to be like uh fighting rings like you would like sit up there and like watch people mm. their knuckles mm -hmm. boxing i don't know if that happened there but um i'm sure it did <laughs> yeah <laughs> in the 20s yeah, big draw. How many people uh, you think fit in that space? Like intimate, but yeah, not that many. I mean, not not much more than a hundred, right? Mm. Oh, I don't know. I think for sure, good. It's good to know other people are bad at measurements, like I 150, am. One fifty. One fifty. What guy's got to be more than that? It wasn't very much, though. I'd say every row of people from back to front could fit over ten uh, each, maybe even like twenty in a row. Yeah. Um, it, well, I'm more acknowledging like it felt like you could pack a crowd in there and it felt just super intimate and such a good Let's spend place. five minutes talking about the capacity <laughs> yeah, of this club that nobody's that. ever been. <laughs> Let's talk about the dimensions. Let me look it up. It um, did have tables. It wasn't but, like packed. It. <laughs> the intimacy, but people sat on it. <laughs> I'm going to Google it right now. Inside of the table. Uh, well, what, I'm, what I'm getting to, what I'm getting to by talking about the intimacy and oh, the wow. okay. nature of the vibes. You're going to be surprised. It's, at the excuse me. <laughs> how many? It's 500. 330. Yeah, I knew it was more than 100. Um, yeah, so 330, It's it turns out, can fit in there. And this was, I'd say, an almost sold out. Yeah, maybe they can, maybe they can, but the intimacy of the venue was perfect. And it was perfect. If you've been listening to the show for a while and you listen to the episode with Abigail Bengtson, if you haven't, you must, but what a great show to see. I've never seen the Bengtsons before. And what a great show to get after that conversation. Um, I was just texting her today, just saying how much I needed it. I just felt yeah. like I needed everything that they offered um, and the way they offer it. Just really met things. me right where I was at. Sorry. Uh, one of no, the coolest things uh, at, right after your wife said, I don't know how much was improvised or not, which I thought was a great compliment for how seamlessly they integrated mm -hmm. spontaneous things. Mm -hmm. uh, to my observation, I think they started, which is a really scary thing to do, with like five minute improvised song. <laughs> and then their first encore was improvised, I, I believe. Yeah, I but think they so. Too. But that they integrated so that the whole thing felt really that intimate way that that uh, spontaneous moments can feel where it's just like this is only happening for us although clearly they were playing you know written songs yeah um, but i thought that was a really wonderful thing I, I think about that a lot of like usually it's so divided of like either you're improvising and you're like you know the grateful dead and it's clear like we're jamming or 
everything is scripted and we have the same set every night. Mm -hmm. I always just want something more in the middle with what I do that isn't calling attention to itself. And ideally people aren't thinking like, wait a minute, are you making this up? But it just, it feels like tailored, you know, a a bespoke Mm -hmm. show for you, for for your needs. Yeah. And and I think of something that's no, no surprise to the listeners and, and to you in terms of my favorite kinds of musicians for, for what we do and who we have on the show. There just felt like immediacy of, of connecting those songs and both the spontaneous improv and the songs that seem to be dialed that they shared with us to their living experience right in the moment. And then kind of like meeting us there and, and making those connections like live. Uh, even Sean Bankson was talking about his, how he is losing his hearing because of mm. something that he's dealing with genetically that runs in his family mm. and how every show he said he loses his hearing a little bit more like that example of what I'm describing. Yeah. It's like you are giving of yourself yeah, yeah. to us right now. It's happening right now. And then to sing a song about it right away. That's what it felt like the whole night, you know, this this exchange and the audience was, just, I think I would bet they'd say was one of their favorite audiences of their run. They did four shows. Um, oh, I just felt, just felt just, just right for me. Yeah. We just were probably so the best audience. So. I think so. Well, what, <laughs> I want to say that the guy, the guy that you acknowledge for being a good announcer got up and said, I want you to know how big a deal it is that they came out for a second encore and that they told us that they needed to have these things dialed, that they don't spontaneously, speaking of which, they don't like to jump off suddenly and do something out of the ordinary, you know, all the time. Like they need to kind of have that stuff planned. Oh, Ned. So they Ned. gave us a heads up on the encore and then they did a real encore. Okay, I'm going to use this. Let me tell you something so I, about show business. Yeah, here. I want to talk about it because this encore <laughs> shit is bullshit. I am sick of going to these shows where it's like, okay, now we got to clap and they're going to come out again. I want some real encores and I feel like we got one. And I don't think that <laughs> happens anymore. We got a real encore and it was because we were a good, good audience. We were good people. <laughs> All right, I'm done with this. Uh, thank you, Nick, so much. So get, glad to get that that time with you at the show. So good to be friends and share those experiences and also I want you to text work. her and say, how many how many double encores did you do? I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna do that and I will get back to you and I will get back to you on record. Um, this will determine but, how real show business is. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm, my fingers are crossed. I don't even need to finger, no finger crossing here. I know that I'm right about that. And, and I really felt it. The point though, more than anything is that it felt really good to share that night, get that night. Glad you were there. And so cool to have an experience like that, that we could share as friends born from this work we do on the podcast. So, um, just, uh, just an acknowledgement of all the connections. Plus that was the first actual time that you and your wife and me and my wife, like, did an event together. Yeah, you know? did a thing. Yeah, yeah. nice. Um, okay, well, thanks, Nick. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Yeah. And everybody else, thanks for listening. We hope you're good. We really do. We care a lot about you, and we really hope this episode met you right where you're at. We mean it. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>